Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's reading is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migran. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozez, and the other was Sinai. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Carrie. Uh, I'm, I'm so, I just want to say I'm so excited to get to join you and others in launching this church in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, and thank you, Joe. Joe, you've been a good friend and an irreplaceable confidant as this church has taken shape. Uh, and before, before we start, let me just say thank you to everyone at Redeemer Lincoln Square, from our staff to our elders, to our diaconate, to you, to every single one of you who have been part of this congregation, whether it's been for a week or for three years, I've never not felt supported throughout this journey. And even beyond uh, this journey, you've always been so caring and thoughtful and loving to me and my family. When Quincy was born, when Hugo was born, when uh, I was ordained, it's been a pretty amazing three years. And you all are a significant, unforgettable part of it. And even today, uh, the fact that, that, that this church, that Redeemer Lincoln Square, is taking up an offering for this church plant that God is building in Hell's Kitchen, I can't even begin to try to convey 
how encouraged I am, how humbled I am, and how excited I am to have your support and to have you be such a foundational, real, tangible part of the start of Hell's Kitchen Community Church. So from the bottom of my heart, and I know mere words cannot capture this gratitude, but thank you. Thank you so much. I'm also, uh, I'm also filled with gratitude, uh, quite simply, because I get to preach today, and I love these opportunities. Uh, it's, to be honest, it's sort of a bittersweet gratitude, because uh, this marks my final time preaching here uh, at Redeemer Lincoln Square. Uh, fortunately, I will be with you uh, uh, for the next two weeks as I preside over worship in our Sunday services, but today is my final sermon here. And because of that, uh, Michael uh, was very gracious and, and encouraging as he invited me to uh, take a pause in the middle of our series uh, on faith in fearful times, our series on Hebrews 11. And he invited me to pick a passage that has been uh, particularly important to me uh, on this journey to plant Hell's Kitchen Community Church. And so, here we are, 1 Samuel 14. Now, I know that uh, perhaps the first reading of this passage uh, may not be completely clear as to why I would pick this, but uh, God has used this passage. He has used this story in some profound ways in my own life. And so uh, it's a privilege to share a bit with you uh, briefly this morning. So as we begin here, uh, just some context. Uh, We're in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, which gives us a lot of history on Israel. In 1 Samuel, we actually see the first king of Israel being selected to reign, and that is Saul, King Saul. Uh, And at first, it seems like Saul might be a pretty solid guy. Uh, He finds some successes uh, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, but around chapter 13, uh, when his kingship actually officially begins, uh, we start to see that, unfortunately, the first king of Israel, King Saul, uh, may be a bit dark and may be a bit dysfunctional. I won't get into it. Uh, You can read... Um, uh, you can read more about it in chapter 13, but basically Saul is not obedient to God. And the prophet Samuel tells him as much, saying to you, King Saul, he says, you have not kept the command that the Lord God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. You can imagine what that would feel like as the leader, as the king uh, to, to, to hear from your prophet that, that he looks at you and he says, man, you disobeyed God and because of that, your kingship is over. It's not going to last. And where we come to at this morning in these opening 14 verses of chapter 14, after Saul hears that from the prophet, uh, Saul and his Israelite army, they are now at war with the Philistines. The context of this chapter is that we know that, that these Philistines have a stranglehold on Israel. Chapter 13 sets this up for us. And to just give a brief flyover from a human standpoint, from our perspective, there's absolutely no hope for Israel in this fight. It was over. There's no chance that they could defeat the Philistine army. And in this morning's passage, in verse 2, we find out Saul, who has been told his kingship will not endure, we find out that he is essentially relaxing under a tree in the face of certain defeat. The Philistines are going to destroy Israel. Saul has found out his kingship is not going to last, and he's not doing a whole lot about it as the king of Israel. 
Most commentators agree that in verses 2 through 4, the historical context is clear, that Saul is basically frozen. He doesn't know what to do. He's indecisive. But perhaps even more striking uh, is the fact that he could be quite decisive, actually. Something in the text that uh, would be easy to gloss over because it's a word uh, that we don't use and actually a word that many of us probably don't even know what is, uh, is that word ephid in verse 3, in, in ephid. Uh, and ephid was a, a garment. It was a special robe worn by priests. And we learn back in Exodus uh, in, in chapter 28 that you could actually use an ephod to find out the will of God. And so King Saul is sitting here with this divine supernatural garment and is making no effort to even try to discern what God's will is in this situation. So perhaps it's not even that he's indecisive, right? Or that he's uh, not taking action. But what's so striking here is the fact that he's blatantly ignoring this opportunity to know what God's will is in this dire situation. And so because of that inaction, because of his father ignoring Ahijah and his ephod, Jonathan is antsy, to say the least. Jonathan, King Saul's son, can't take his father's lack of action any longer than he already has. And so he decides to attack the Philistines. This is actually how this morning's passage opens up. And then in verse 6, Jonathan looks to his armor bearer, who is exactly uh, what you would think by the name. He's a man who traveled with Jonathan, who carried his armor for him, and who was with him every step of the way on whatever journey they were on or whatever battle they were in. And so Jonathan, knowing he wants to attack the Philistines, turns to his armor bearer and he says, Come, let's go. But he doesn't just say, let's go, at least not in this instance. This isn't an arrogant son of the king who's just trying to flex his muscles or work out some personal issues. He says, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And then in the last half of this passage, we see the results of Jonathan and his armor bearer going. He says, let's go, and they do. And then what does that look like? Well, basically, in response to his dad's lack of action, Jonathan takes it upon himself to do something about the Philistines, who were all but ready to destroy the Israelites. He basically asks God for a sign in verse 10 to see whether or not God is with him, to see if the Lord will act in his behalf. In other words, as ready as he is to go, he is not willing to move ahead without attempting to discern God's will in this situation. It's an incredible show of faith, especially when his father, King Saul, has shown very little faith. And we see in verse 12, we see that uh, the Lord gives Jonathan this approval. Because the Philistines look at Jonathan and his armor bearer, and I'm sure they were laughing their heads off as they said, Yeah. Sure, come on up. And before Jonathan even gets to the Philistines, he knows God is with him. Before he even gets there, he knows God is with him. He says, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel before it's even happened. He is saturated in faith in what his God is doing and also what his God will do. And between the two of them, 
Between Jonathan and his armor bearer, they killed about 20 Philistines. The next eight or so verses in the chapter, uh, they're not part of this morning's passage, but they show us that because of Jonathan and his faith in God, God struck the rest of the Philistine army with deep confusion. And in verse 23, we are told, on that day, the Lord saved Israel. Okay, so that's the story. That's what we see here. And I mentioned at the start of the sermon that we're pausing our series on Hebrews 11, uh, the series on faith and fearful times uh, for this message. But uh, to be honest, uh, this passage is actually, in my opinion, a tremendous story about faith, about faith in fearful times. And I think because of that, uh, because of what we see here in this ancient story of ancient Israel and because of what it means for us today, this is an important passage for all of us. Regardless of what we might be facing right now, regardless of where we might be at in our own faith journey, regardless of how much faith we think we have or we think we need to have, this passage is important. And I think we see that importance. I think we see that significance wrapped up in verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. This is why it's important, because Jonathan, for all of his gumption, right, for all of his hubris, for all of his confidence, Jonathan is not rooting any of that into himself, but he is rooting that completely and utterly in his faith in God. Yes, he is excited. He's frustrated with his dad. He's ready. And he says, come, let's go. But he follows that statement up with that word, perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, The original Hebrew word used here uh, is often defined as the phrase, uh, it may be that. So perhaps, or it may be that. It's not exactly a word or a phrase that evokes a whole lot of self-confidence or power or might, right? I mean, think about it. You know, just generally, I want XYZ. Perhaps I'll get it. I don't want XYZ to happen, but perhaps it will. It may be that it will. Go through your own life. What decisions are you making right now uh, that you could follow up with that word perhaps? And it might kind of be like, ugh, why would I, I want to say, say that? I think about my own life right now. Everything we've been talking about in this service, I am, I'm just a few weeks away from quitting a job, a job that I love, a job that I really, really feel lucky to have. Quitting this job in the middle of a global pandemic because perhaps this church plant will work. It may be that Hell's Kitchen Community Church succeeds. Perhaps I'll be able to find another vocation to live out my call to be a bivocational pastor. And when you say that, then then what's the other side? Well, perhaps this church plant won't work out. It may be that Hell's Kitchen Community Church fails. It may be that perhaps I won't find another job. On some level, (laughs) I don't think we as human beings have categories for that kind of thinking. It's not what we want. It's not what we desire. Even as I say those last few sentences, I can feel myself kind of clamming up on the verge of freaking out, thinking, yeah, perhaps those bad things will happen. Perhaps those good things won't happen. But the reason why this verse is so powerful and this whole story is so significant is because Jonathan doesn't just say perhaps. So yes, he's confident, he's raring to go. He looks at his armor bearer and the first thing he says is, let's do this. And then he says that word, perhaps. 
And he says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. This wasn't, perhaps we will defeat the Philistines. This wasn't, perhaps I will show my dad how to lead. This was, perhaps the Lord will be with us. Our translation says, act in our behalf, but other translations say, work for us, help us, work on our behalf, or intervene for us. The Hebrew word uh, here can be defined as simply as do or make. And in, in the Old Testament, that word is often affiliated with doing or making right the statutes of God. So for Jonathan, his confidence, his faith, his exuberance, it's not found in his own strength or his own expectations or his own hopes for what will happen, but it is found in the reality that all he needs is the Lord. He pushes this reality even further as he asserts to his armor bearer, basically, who are we? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. And that word saving, man, it is so much deeper than merely rescuing. But when Jonathan says that, he's looking at cosmic deliverance, at spiritual salvation, at complete and utter victory that can be achieved only by the God of the universe, by Yahweh in this passage, by the God of Israel. And that is why this passage, this verse, has been so important to me on this journey to plant Hell's Kitchen Community Church. When Michael told me I could pick a passage uh, that was significant to this journey, I knew, I knew that it would be this story. Because think about those things I said. Perhaps the church plant will work. It may be that Hell's Kitchen Community Church succeeds. Perhaps I'll be able to find another job. But follow each of those sentences up with, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Perhaps this church plant will work. Perhaps it won't. But nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. It may be that this church uh, succeeds. It may be that it fails. But nothing can hinder the Lord from saving Perhaps I'll I'll be able to find another job. Perhaps I won't. But nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. I'll never forget the time when this became clear to me. I was at a morning prayer gathering uh, with several pastors uh, in the city. Uh, We were meeting at Calvary Baptist's office space on 57th Street, and one of the pastors, Guy Wasco, uh, who leads Sanctuary Church in the East Village, uh, he actually led a brief devotional on this passage. And I tell you, my friends, I heard the word of God like I had never heard before in my life. Guy was speaking to a group of faithful men and women who were all receiving the same devotional, and I felt like he was speaking to me and me alone. 
by that point, this was probably about a, a year and a half or two years ago, you know, I was feeling confident that I was going to plant eventually, but to be honest, I was a little sheepish about what that meant, about what that looked like, about how soon that might be, about all of these different things. And when Guy read those verses and spoke, it was like I was given an otherworldly boost of confidence because I realized no matter what I do, no matter what decisions I make, no matter how many times I might fail, no matter, no matter how many times I might do something right, the Lord is going to do what the Lord is going to do. Nothing I can do or not do will hinder my God from saving, from delivering his people, from restoring his creation, from redeeming Hell's Kitchen. That was true thousands and thousands of years ago for Jonathan in this story, and that's true for me today planting this church, and this is true for you, my friends. Man, I wish I could bottle up that feeling I had that morning uh, when I heard Guy uh, share this. And in some ways, I guess I can, because whenever I catch myself feeling a wave of of self-doubt or worry or lack of confidence or self-righteousness or pride, I remind myself that the God that I follow, this God, this God will call me into places that might make me feel uncomfortable. This God will call me into places that might make me doubt myself, but this God will never call me into places where he is not completely and wholly at work and in control. And what is absolutely critical to remember here is that this truth, this reality, it doesn't relieve us of action. It doesn't mean we just sit back under a pomegranate tree and say, well, nothing can hinder God, so I'm just going to chill. Because you see in this story, Jonathan doesn't do that. Jonathan sees his dad doing that, resting on his laurels. And Jonathan, with complete faith in God's sovereignty, goes. Let's go. He says, let's go. And then he acknowledges that God is in control but he still goes. He still climbs. He still travels. He still fights. He still goes. Does God need me to plant a church in Hell's Kitchen? I don't think so, but I'm going because I believe that's what God is calling me and others to do. But ultimately, that's I'm going because I know God will use this church for his saving, for his deliverance, for his glory. I'm not the one growing this church. God is growing this church. So let's go. I know I'm leaving. I know I'm, I'm going, but I also know that I love this church, Redeemer Lincoln Square, so much. I love Redeemer so much. It's been my family's home here in New York City for a decade. It's the reason I went to seminary. It's the reason why I got into ministry. And I love Lincoln Square so much. And so though I know I'm going, I'm not disappearing. And so I want, I want you to think, where is God calling me to go? Where is God calling you to go? Where do I need to have this kind of faith that Jonathan has in this passage? Where in my life do I need to say, let's go, because it's not about me, it's about God? You know, I know, I've, I, I know what I've shared uh, is tied around starting something, tied around, you know, for me, for this, a, a job, tied around practically doing something. But this question, you know, where is God leading you? Where are you going? is so much deeper than just that what are you afraid of right now? Or what are you frustrated about right now? Or where are you finding so much of your self-worth or pride right now? I mean, think of Jonathan here. He's likely, to be honest, terrified. He sees certain defeat on the horizon with the Philistines closing in on Israel's army. And he's likely really ticked off at his dad for just sitting around, for ignoring God, for being indecisive. And that is what propels Jonathan into this deep faith, into this faith-driven action. What is that for you today? If I may, 
Uh, earlier in the service, we briefly mentioned uh, one of the core values of Hell's Kitchen Community Church uh, being anti-racism. And this has been a value that, uh, to be honest, I've been working through specifically for this plant for about two years, and uh, it's been part of my own personal journey for longer than that. Uh, and so I truly believe, I truly believe that this is one of the things the Lord wants me to speak out about. And it's one of the things that he is going to use to build his church. And also one of the things that I believe will bring glimpses of God's perfect redemption and restoration into Hell's Kitchen. But I also know that in our our politicized climate, the mere mention of that word, anti-racist, I know that it will ruffle feathers. It maybe made some of you kind of tense up when it was first mentioned uh, earlier in the service. And I also know that there are times that I, I haven't spoken out. Uh, about it in ways that are entirely helpful or gracious. I know this, and I, I confess that to you right now. I've had brothers and sisters, you, my dear friends, call me out on that, and for that I am deeply, deeply grateful. Just as we prayed this morning, I strive, I long, I hope to pray to God and ask Him to pardon me. I'm desperate to be as honest in my own relationship with God as we were together in our prayer of confession, admitting that we are hasty and short in prayer, admitting that I am hasty and I am short in prayer, that I have robbed God of the true worship he deserves. But let me say this too. As I find myself being challenged and being admonished, being sharpened, it hasn't caused me to shrink back from speaking out. It's actually causing me to go deeper into the Word of God as I speak out because I know that the gospel has freed me from the fear of saying or doing the wrong things because I know I will still, but I trust that God can use the the Jonathans and the Chucks of this world through their mistakes and flaws and imperfections to speak up for what he loves, to speak up against what he hates, to fight for what brings him glory, and to fight against what breaks his heart, to accomplish his purpose of bringing his justice and peace and restoration and world-changing redemption and reconciliation into this world that he loves so deeply. And so when Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, when, when these image bearers are murdered and their names become movements and those movements become protests and those protests become reform and all of these things lead to more and more conversations and actions surrounding injustice in our world, you know what I say? Or, you know what I hope I'm brave enough to say? What I hope I'm faithful enough to say? Let's go. Let's go. And when I mess up, when I slip, when I fall, I hope that I can turn to God, that I can turn to my neighbor, to my brother or my sister, and hope that I have enough faith to cry out and ask for forgiveness, to repent of my own self-righteousness, of my own misgivings, of my own prejudices, because I know that nothing I can do can hinder God from bringing His cosmic, world-changing justice to humanity. Nothing I can do can hinder God from redeeming and restoring and perfecting the city of ours. Nothing I can do can hinder the healing of every nation on this globe, the bringing of the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing I can do can hinder the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that, that my friends, is what we see when we read this ancient story today. 
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a man who said, let's go, God incarnate who said, let's go, and he lived on this earth as a child, as a teenager, as a man, as a minister, and he was arrested and he was executed and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, all because he was trusting in the work of God, his Father, the work that he was sent to this earth to do and to accomplish. In the, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the night before he would be nailed to a cross, Jesus prayed to God his Father and said in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ, God himself, speaks the reality that nothing can hinder the work of the Lord. Nothing can hinder the will of the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, from delivering, from rescuing his people. Christ embodies in a way that is nearly inconceivable and yet is here for us right now in all its beauty, in all of its glory. Christ embodies the perfect Jonathan, right? The perfect Jonathan who has unshakable faith in God. Christ is the perfect, blameless Jonathan, and Christ is not just the God of Israel, of one nation, but Christ is the Savior of the world. Christ is the King of kings. Christ is the Lord of our lives here and now. Christ is the perfect Jonathan, and Christ is the very God who cannot be hindered. And instead of climbing and traversing and doing something behind his father's back, all to kill a handful of Philistines, Jesus Christ incarnates on this earth to do the work of his father and not to kill his enemies, but to die for them. Hear that. Hear that. Jonathan sneaks away from his father to kill his enemies. Jesus comes to do his father's work to die for his enemies. Both of these men, Jonathan and Jesus, They were being faithful to the Father. But one of these men leads to fleeting violence, and the other other leads to eternal peace. For you and me today, right now, we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. We're not blameless. And if you read through 1 Samuel, we're not even Jonathan. Jonathan lived a pretty faithful life. He only messed up a couple of times that we know of uh, that's recorded in 1 Samuel. Most of us, me... I've messed up five or six times already today. I read that prayer of confession with you, and I'm just like, yep, 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 that's me, Lord, that's me. So when I see the story of Jonathan, or when I come face to face with this eternal peace of Jesus Christ, the reality that as he hung on the cross, he cried out to God and said, Father, forgive them, forgive the very people who had arrested him and hung him on the cross of his execution. When I think of this, I know how easy it is to feel hopeless, to feel faithless. And yet, if there is one thing you walk away with today, let it simply be remembering that word, perhaps. Jonathan, for all of his strength and confidence that we've talked about, he didn't say, let's go. I know God will save us. He could have, and it would have been really amazing because God saved them. But Jonathan, in some way, he had tiny faith. He had small faith, so small that all he could muster to say is that word, perhaps. But that tiny, that small faith followed that word, perhaps, with the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. In Matthew 17, Jesus Christ says, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing 
will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you because nothing you can do will hinder the work of our Lord and our God. And in fact, our Lord and our God will use you for that work. So let that free you. Let that, let that free you. Your own personal expectations, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Your own self-doubt, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Your own impossibly high standards, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Your own fears of speaking out on behalf of God's people or saying the wrong thing or trying to say the perfect thing, your own worries about sharing your faith with your friends and your family, your own desire to control every aspect of your life, your sexuality, your racism, your prejudices, your self-righteousness, politics, health, careers, money, your family, your desire for a family, your broken relationships, whatever it is, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. We can say this because we worship a God who didn't kill our enemies, but who died for them, for you and for me. We worship a God who doesn't demand our strength and confidence and perfection, but who lets us, who invites us to rest in his strength and perfection. And not just rest, but to act upon his strength and perfection, to trust in his strength and perfection, in his eternal saving grace and peace. We worship a God, we worship this Jesus Christ who reigns as the Lord of our lives to this very day and who has promised to return to our world to wipe away every tear, to abolish our sorrows, to bring perfection into God's creation. This Christ who, just as we said together in our call to worship this morning, this Christ is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Redeemer Lincoln Square My friends, my brothers and sisters, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, faith that can at least drum up the courage to say that one word, perhaps, faith that can begin to see that nothing you or I can do or not do can hinder the work of our Lord, if you have that kind of faith, nothing is impossible. If you have that kind of faith, you can move mountains. If you have that kind of faith, if I have that kind of faith, Christ can save even a wretch like me. Christ can find even a lost soul like mine. Christ can give sight even to a blind man like me. So, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Father, for this connection to your people over thousands and thousands of years, to this connection to this ancient story. Father, I thank you for the faith of Jonathan. But more than that, God, I thank you for being with Jonathan, for acting on his behalf, for intervening on his behalf, for rescuing your people. And Father, thank you for sending your son here to do that for all of your people, God. Thank you for sending your Son to do and and accomplish your work for our forgiveness, Lord, that we might be, be filled with your grace and your peace, that we might be viewed as righteous by you. 
Father, thank you for doing that. Father, I pray that for me, for everybody watching, listening, Lord, that you would give us this kind of faith. Faith in who you are. Faith who you have always been for thousands and thousands of years. Faith who, for who you were when Christ came to this earth. Faith for who you are today as Christ sits at your right hand and, and, and reigns as Lord of our lives. And faith for who you promise to be tomorrow. So God, let's go. Let's go because of who you are. We thank you. We praise your name. We pray all of these things, not for our own glory, Lord, but for your glory, for your majesty. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.